Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We turn to Philippians chapter 4 for our call to confession this morning. Philippians 4 verse 2. Hear God's word. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntuche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Like Paul and Barnabas in our sermon text this morning, Euodia and Suntuke could not get along for a time. The Philippians must have had a hard time with this a lot because Paul several times tells them to be of the same mind or to be like-minded. Now, this doesn't mean that they were all mental clones of everyone on every issue. When there's a disagreement in theology or in what we should do, Uh, There doesn't have to be a loser who surrenders and a winner whose view conquers. The key to like-mindedness isn't like that, but it's described in verse 5 of chapter 2. The mind of Christ must prevail. We must be willing to take a lower place than we think we deserve. Humble service and obedience is the Lord's path for us, more than self-assertion. We see that in verse 5 where he says, Let your gentleness be known to all. Gentleness is usually the first thing to go when you can't get along with someone. So Paul reminds us of that. We're more likely, as Jesus said, to serve our way up than we are to argue our way up. And so we should work towards that. So let's confess our sins before the Lord. Father, we give you thanks for your word that we have been reading, that you have given us this great and precious gift, filled with promises, protections, uh, exhortations, commands, direction for how you call us to serve you. Lord, let us embrace this word by the persuasion of your spirit. We pray that you would screw this word into our minds and souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 15, verse 36. Hear God's word. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed but his father was Greek. 
He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Kids, I want to start by talking to you for a second. Kids, has it ever happened to you when you're playing in your room with your brothers or sisters or maybe with some friends and some argument starts and it gets so bad that somebody has to leave the room or maybe you even hit each other out of anger, right? That's what happens here in Acts 15 at the end of this chapter. It's saying, I think I'm just going to take my ball and go home. (laughs) It's that kind of attitude that has Paul and Barnabas part from each other. That's when the argument gets so bad, you just leave. If we think back on our friends, on our histories of our relationships, most of us can think of times that this has happened to us. And uh, you can think of people you don't talk to anymore. It's not pleasant to think about. But the Bible deals with these situations. And here we have one place where it does. So God's word, the the main theme here today is that God's word calls us to undivided discipleship, to be disciples together following the Lord. That's the call. And you can see there are two easy uh, sections in this passage. First, we have the division at the end of chapter 15, and then we have the disciple at the beginning of chapter 16. So we'll look at each of those in turn. So there's a second journey proposed, and this is a great idea that Paul has. We should go back and see how everybody's doing. When you talk to someone and you say you're going to pray for them, uh, it's good to actually do that, and then to make a phone call in a few days and follow up and talk to them again instead of just dropping it. Following up is a good idea. They disagree over Mark. Remember he left, and remember that Mark, John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas insists that he come along. Paul insists that he not come along. So that's the basic uh, disagreement. So they go and they each take their home turf is what they wind up doing. Two missions go out instead of one. So God does work good out of evil, right? As uh, Joseph reminded his brothers at the end of Genesis, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's something, a good principle to keep in mind. I do think, and there's some dispute about this, but I do think that this was an evil. This was a sin of division, uh, not excused by getting more done, by by the fact that there's two trips going out now instead of one. So there's a self-willedness here uh, that refuses to defer when a non-moral issue is at hand, uh, or that turns an opinion into a moral issue. Uh, This is especially serious in leaders in the church and in the family. It it can cause a lot of exasperation in in a wife or husband, uh, in children. It can cause much confusion in the church. So differences, disagreements like this, should not usually result in division. Contention should not be so sharp. We don't know exactly who is to blame. Is it Paul or Barnabas or both from this distance? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. Paul shouldn't have 
held it so hard against Mark for leaving the first time, Barnabas shouldn't have been so insistent that his cousin come along. So maybe both. We're not really sure. But when we've come to the point where either they have to go or I do, then there's been a failure somewhere uh, and repentance is needed. Now, we're not talking here about major compromise in morals or, or doctrine, right? There are, there are times when you have to leave a church, for example, because its, it's um, unfaithfulness is so great. So we're not talking about that kind of situation. We're talking about should we take Mark along or not? <laughs> Smaller things. And this happens so often in the church, splits and separations, that we've grown accustomed to it and we tolerate it, and sometimes we even celebrate our own stubbornness. And that's something to watch out for. So we, we shouldn't be used to this happening, even though it does happen a lot. Uh, one of the requirements to be an elder in Titus 1.7 is to be not self-willed, or the word is stubborn or arrogant. And that's kind of what's manifesting here in Paul and Barnabas, it seems to me. Kevin DeYoung has a good passage on this, on elders uh, dealing with disagreements, and it applies to everyone. So I've got a fairly long section I want to quote here, and he's talking about elders, but it really applies to all of us. So here's what he says. A good elder or a good pastor has learned to be a calming presence in volatile situations. Of course, this doesn't mean the pastor says peace, peace when there is no peace. Nothing in the Bible equates godliness with avoiding controversy at all costs. But on the other hand, there's no biblical evidence to suggest that maximizing disagreements and escalating tensions are marks of Christian maturity. Some leaders are nonstop relational intensifiers. I like that phrase. This is still DeYoung. Whether it's because of their own emotions, they're quick jumping to conclusions, drop them into a conflict and the fire burns hotter. (laughs) Still de young. They experience thorny situations in exaggerated ways and then convey those with the ever-present air of hyperbole. Choppy waters get choppier. Deep holes get deeper. Explosive problems go nuclear. These elders and pastors or friends, they usually don't last long. They get run out, beat up, or burnt out. If they last, then everyone around them feels tired, hurt, and eager to quit. (laughs) Still be young. We need church leaders uh, ready to do hard things and wade into the toughest situations. But when they do, they should help serious conflict get calmer instead of making minor conflict get crazier. That's all the young, unquote. So here with Paul and Barnabas, a minor conflict got crazy. That's what's happening. And it happens, notice, right after the major conflict back in the last chapter with the Judaizers was dealt with wonderfully. So it can be a wild ride in church life or family life where one day you get through something just great and it's just, oh, that was perfect how that went. And the next day everything blows up again somewhere else. That's what we have here. Now, it is important to talk about what kind of things they're disagreeing about, right? Al Mohler uh, has a great uh, thing called theological triage. I've showed most of you this already, I think. This this three-level grid, right? First level is core stuff, right? Is someone questioning the deity of Christ or the Spirit? 
right? Is, is your pastor in the pulpit saying the atonement's really no big deal? That, well, that's, that strikes at the heart of Christianity. That that's something you have to have a conflict about, <laughs> right? So there's that level. Uh, that's part of the faith stuff. And then there's second level things that tend to make denominations. Issues like baptism, uh, church government, how you interpret scripture on election and predestination, those kind of things. And, and you can be reading scripture wrong on those things, and that's bad, but it, your soul isn't really in danger over it, if that makes some sense. Believers can feel strongly enough about them that different churches form, often out of practical necessity. You know, you can't have one church leadership where some of them are Episcopal in government and some are congregational. How's that going to work? Where, where some think that women should be ordained as elders and others don't. How do you do that in one church? You're going to pick one or the other as, as a leadership. You're going to ordain that person or not. So there, there's practical ways in which it, that the issues divide us, and it's unfortunate, uh, but you, we're just not reading, interpreting Scripture the same. So there's not much we can do there except to continue to pursue study of Scripture and pursue like-mindedness. And then there's a third level of issues. Uh, you know, everything below that, less important, shouldn't divide believers, right? And uh, that list, uh, actually left a list out of my notes for that. I don't know if I can think of some offhand. That might be a bad idea. I think I'll just leave it at that and say there's less important things we shouldn't divide over, all right? So our tendency is usually to take a third level issue and make it second level, right? To, to divide a church over a matter of opinion that we could just cordially disagree about. That, that's one tendency. Or we'll take a second level issue and make it first level, right? That, and how you do that is you say, if you're not a Calvinist, then you're not really a Christian. Uh, or it's possible to go the other way and to make a bigger issue too minor. Oh, let's not fuss too much over the atonement of Christ or the inspiration of Scripture. We talked about that already. So there's all kinds of different ways to mess this up. You've got to figure out what the issue is and how important is that issue. And then you know what's at stake. And that's important to do. Um, you know, when you're disagreeing or discussing something, you can try different things too. Methods in how to communicate constructively are important. You know, try assertions, I mean, excuse me, try questions instead of assertions, right? Like, can we agree that X? Do we agree on that? You, you want to be more of an explorer in, in discussions and disagreements instead of a, an accuser who, who says, you're getting this wrong, until you know for sure. Some, you might have to get to that point where you say, no, that's wrong. You might get there, but, but start cordial and exploring together. Well, another way to do that, I learned from R.C. Sproul, who used to do um, labor union disputes. Uh, he would get involved in those. And the question he would always ask is, what are you worried about in this disagreement? What, what are you trying to avoid here? What's your fear? What, what are you afraid might happen? And that, that's helpful to uh, understand people better too. Well, before we move on to the disciple, the last thing on this division is to notice that it's overcome later. Uh, and that's the positive thing about this uh, discussion. And, and it's something to think about in our own um, relationships and lives too. Even if it doesn't come this side of glory, it's going to come in glory. 
is if, if they are believers, there's going to be reunion and, and a completely restored relationship, even with those people that you just never talk to again. But if they're believers, you're going to, and it's going to be great. And so we see that happen right here in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, you can jot this down. I guess I won't take the time to turn there slowly. But Colossians 4.10, Paul writes to the Colossians and says, uh, Aristarchus greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So Mark is with Paul as he's writing to the Colossians. And then he goes on to say this about Mark. You have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul makes it very clear that this guy's um, not persona non grata. This, this guy's, he's, he's good. He's with me. And that's, that's an important thing that Paul at, at some point changes his mind about Mark. We don't know how or what the details are, but he does. Same thing he says in 2 Timothy, at the end of 2 Timothy, to, uh, that Paul writes to Timothy and says this, verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So it wasn't just that there was a personal uh, reconciliation, but Paul actually came to see that Mark was useful in ministry. That's the very thing he stubbornly rejected here in our text. Uh, he shouldn't come along. He, he blew it the first time. Now Paul sees it differently, and he wants Mark with him. So that division is overcome uh, later on. And that's a wonderful thing. So that's the division. Then we have the disciple, the first five verses of chapter 16. Uh, so Paul goes, uh, notice also it says that he goes, um, now I can't find it. It's the end of um, chapter 15, actually. Paul chooses Silas and went through Syria and Cilicia. And if you remember, Cilicia is the region, the province, where Tarsus is. That's Paul's hometown. So each of them, when they separate, Barnabas goes to his hometown, Cyprus. Paul goes through his uh, in Cilicia, Tarsus. Doesn't mention Tarsus, but it would be like going from here to Grand Rapids and not going through Lansing. You don't really do that. You're, you're going to go through Lansing because it's a big town. So is Tarsus. So uh, that's what's going on. Uh, so he finds Timothy in Lystra. Uh, a certain disciple was there, a son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So, in other words, that strongly implies that Timothy's father was not a believer. Not just that he wasn't Jewish, but that he's not a believer, because Timothy isn't circumcised. And I, we surmise that the custom was that you needed a male sponsor in the synagogue to have a child circumcised, and that just never happened. Timothy's mother believes, his grandmother believes, but there was no father believing to, to present Timothy for circumcision, so he was never circumcised. Mom and uh, his mother Eunice and Lois, they're taught in the faith, we read in 2 Timothy, and th this is something important that we ought to consider. Uh, in our circles, we focus a lot on masculine Christianity these days, and the need to, to not be fatherless. We, we need believing fathers. We need masculine role models in the faith. And that's all very true. But notice that Timothy didn't have it. And, and Timothy is uh, Paul's star pupil. Extremely useful in ministry. So uh, 
it goes back to Psalm 68. God can be a father to the fatherless, and he can show those who have not had good father role models how to live and serve the Lord as men. That's what Timothy gets. Now, among the Jews, and here's something maybe you didn't know about Timothy, but this is important. Among the Jews, he is scorned for being illegitimate. If you're not circumcised and, and, and you don't have a, a Jewish father who believes, the, the word for that, we have a word for that. In the, in the Yiddish, it's mumzer. I, I won't say the English word because it's not polite. So he's scorned. That's the kind of person the Jewish community saw Timothy as. Paul sees an opportunity to redeem that and to gain a student and a successor. So much like Boaz does with Ruth, Paul gives mercy to an outsider and he brings him in. And remember from a few chapters ago, that was what Barnabas was really good at. That just uh, struck me this morning as I was doing last minute reading through this. Remember, it was Barnabas who brought Paul into the church when the church wouldn't accept him. And now, as soon as Paul and Barnabas separate and aren't seeing eye to eye, it's fascinating to me that Paul does what Barnabas is really good at, brings somebody in who's kind of on the outside. Anyway, that's what Paul does. So consider Timothy. The Jews saw him as a Greek. The Greeks saw him as a Jew. He's an outsider to everybody but he's well spoken of as a disciple in the church. And that makes all the difference. Paul takes him, has him circumcised because of the Jews in that region. That's fascinating. Paul refused to cave when the Judaizers insist that Titus be circumcised in Jerusalem. Titus was a Greek with no need at all to be circumcised. Timothy, though, has been raised on the scriptures from his youth and should have been circumcised, but never was. Now, technically, he doesn't need to be now, but here, where Timothy's ministry will be dead on arrival without it, Paul circumcises him. To the Jews, I'll become a Jew, Paul says. I'll I'll become whatever to bring them Christ in a way that they will hear. So that's what he does. The next thing to consider here is, and, and this one's, this point always makes me emotional. I don't, I don't know. It's the whole fatherless point. Timothy doesn't have a spiritual father. So do you know what Paul calls Timothy over and over in Scripture? My beloved son. Timothy is basically an adopted son of Paul. It's fascinating. We read it in Philippians 2. I'm just going to run through some of these passages. I want to linger on this just so that we see it. Philippians 2 verse 19. I trust the Lord to, in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. I have no one like-minded like him. You know his character? That as a son with his father he served with me. There it is to the Philippians. We see it in the, at the beginning of the letters to Timothy. Uh, we read 2 Timothy, so how about if I look at 1 Timothy this time? 1 Timothy, just the first two verses of each letter. Paul, an apostle, to Timothy, 
a true son in the faith. Right? At the beginning of every letter, Paul describes himself. Often he takes quite a few phrases and lines to say who he is. Apostle of Jesus, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. There's a lot of theology packed into that. And then we often just run right over the next verse. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. I'm quite convinced that when Timothy received these letters and just read that opening greeting, he just broke down in tears. He had never had a father to be a true son to. But now he has Paul. God sets the solitary in families. Timothy needed a father. Paul needed a disciple. Paul's first young disciple, Mark, let him down and left. Paul's longtime companion, Barnabas, left with him. And that hurts. And Silas is, he's too new to be of much comfort yet. And Timothy just fills a big hole. (laughs) It's wonderful to think about how the Lord works in these ways in our lives. We need fathers to look to as an example. And we need disciples to pass on our legacy to as well. We read this in 1 Corinthians 4. Let me just reread part of that again. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15. And here Paul is talking to the Corinthians. Though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ... Yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways. So you see what Paul's doing there? He's claiming to be a father to the Corinthians. And then he says, because of that, I'm sending you my son, Timothy, because he knows my ways. Imitate me by looking at Timothy. See how much imitation is is built into the design of our lives. That's why we need uh, mentors and we need uh, disciples so that we can watch and learn. This happened to me, this was drilled into me when I went to um, Israel and Turkey with Ray Vanderlaan. One of his teaching techniques was to say, I'm the rabbi, you're the students, you're the disciples. Don't just listen to what I say, do what I do. And so we would get off the bus and he would find a, a a tree and break off a small little branch, stick it in his hat. We all wore hats to protect the head from the sun. And then he'd turn around and look at us and say, come, follow me. And he'd take off walking, but he had trained us so well that we knew, okay, we can't just walk by this tree. Every one of the 50 of us in the group breaks off a little branch and sticks it in their hat. We do what the rabbi does. We watch him and we imitate that's what we're supposed to do. Paul, imitate Paul, imitate Christ. And one lesson I learned in that, one, one of those days when we're walking, it turns out to be a string of people, right? 50 people long, just kind of single file. Well, one day I wound up second right behind Ray. 
So I'm following him hard, just trying to keep up. It's hard to keep up with him. And after about five minutes, I realize, I think, to look back. And the next person behind me is like 50 yards back. Like, whoa. So in our Christian walk, we've got to think that way. I need to follow Jesus. I need to follow him hard. But I also need to be looking back to make sure my people are coming with me. And that's what Jesus says to Peter when he restores him, right? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. That was Peter's, that was the apostle's job, to feed the church. We are in a spiritual battle every day. And Satan loves to get us to try to be our own person. That's one of his favorite lies, especially in our culture. You don't don't follow somebody else. Be your own person. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Don't listen to other people. That's deception. To remove your support on the spiritual battlefield. Right? If you've bought that lie to be your own man, then you're all alone. And surrounded by foes. Why not rather be part of a battalion, a corps, a platoon, and stand together? We have a captain of our salvation. Just one, um, this might not be the right place to mention it, but I didn't get it in my notes, and I want to make sure I don't forget it. One thing that I've seen here in the last three, four weeks Um, a couple times, three times, is young fathers, when we uh, get to the Apostles' Creed, who are, uh, we're all standing when we say the Creed, right? And what I've seen two, three times in the last month or so is young fathers bending down or sitting down with their arms around their kids with that bulletin with the Creed, pointing to the finger. Here's what we're reading. Bringing them along. That's what faithful fathers do. They're teaching. They're showing. This is important to us. Learn this. Do this. So, almost done. They're relaying the Jerusalem decision as well. That's the end of our text, verses 5 and 6. Remember, Silas was from Jerusalem, so he's useful in that. So ending here, that this wraps up the account of the Jerusalem council as well. That's part of what they're doing. So uh, back to application on the, the disciple, on Timothy. One thing we're doing as a culture, worse and worse these days, one reason society is deteriorating is because we don't think much about our decisions long term anymore. If I make this life decision... What is that going to mean for me or for my children 15 years from now? That may be something uh, that Eunice uh, forgot about. We don't know. I don't want to be too hard on Eunice because we don't know. But it's really important to marry in the faith. And apparently Eunice did not. Don't know what happened there. Maybe she's not to blame. But this caused a great deal of heartache for Timothy socially. And that applies to more minor issues too, how we educate our children and so on. It's important to think about those things. 
uh, second point of application. Uh, all of us, like Timothy, we are children of God. The, the doctrine of adoption is one of the most underrated. Uh, the Westminster spends a, quite a bit of time on it. It's something to consider. God has adopted us into his family as sons and daughters. And we say in the creed every week, the only begotten son of God. We believe in Jesus. Jesus is the first and only begotten son. The gospels make this really clear. At his baptism, the father speaks to him in a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. And then the very next thing that happens, the very next verse or chapter, couple verses, the devil questions it. If you are God's son, then do this to prove it. Sowing seeds of doubting that you're really a child of God. Prove it by doing your own thing. That's Satan's lie again. So, just treasure the truth is one thing to apply here. Treasure the truth that you are a child of God. Our earthly fathers are not perfect. Paul wasn't. The apostle Paul wasn't perfect. And it, scripture gives us this account, I think, for that reason, to remind us of that. And yet he asserts his spiritual fatherhood for the Corinthians. We sing sometimes, right? Our earthly rulers falter. And we do. But we can be too quick to reject our earthly fathers for their flaws. And it leaves a gaping vacuum in our lives with no mentor to follow. We need to follow others. Go back and honor your father. Might be an application point today. Jim Wilson has a great book on how to be free from bitterness. And he's got very practical advice in there on how to honor your father and mother. So take that uh, along with the Heidelberg reading of the day, if, if that's an area you need to work on. Or seek the wisdom of others here. Uh, maybe that opportunity is gone for you, but there are also fathers, always fathers, uh, on earth still living that we can look to for wisdom. Something else to think about is, uh, fathers, do your sins affect the ability to lead and influence your family? That, and the answer to that is yes, it, it does. We need to know and account for that in how we lead, right? Um, we crave influence from others, but our sin erodes that influence. When people see hypocrisy or whatever, that erodes that. So we can't always expect all that we want to demand. Sometimes we wind up in that situation, and the call then is to lead in repentance. If we want our kids to learn how to repent and obey, we've got to show them how and do it first. And that's what Jesus did. He was a faithful son to his father and learned obedience. And so we have a savior to follow. It also struck me this morning that he's called the everlasting father in Isaiah 9. We always think of Jesus as a son, which of course he is. But in a sense, a very real sense, he's our father. 
I don't want to confuse that with Trinitarian stuff. I'm, I'm saying he's our example. He's the one we're called to imitate. That's Jesus, just as Jesus imitated the love of the Father. And, and that's, there's a good um, chain there for us to follow. Father, only begotten Son, uh, apostles like Paul and Timothy, and then us. We imitate up the chain. That's, uh, we see that in the book of Job. I read from Job with Elihu. He observed this. Uh, the th- other three friends all speak first and just accuse Job, but it's kind of off base. And he points it out. He says, my elders have not dealt well with Job. They condemned him without a good reason. Great men are not always wise, he says. And that, that's Paul and Barnabas in this passage. On the positive side, to end on a positive note, you do have influence. Be willing to tell stories, to give input, to be there, to encourage, to guide. It's wonderful uh, walking around before or after church here, uh, seeing uh, the older taking care of uh, a little one from somebody that's not in their family. That happens quite a bit here. It's lovely. That's part of what I'm getting at. Your children and others around you are watching, maybe following. Paul models this for the Corinthians. He even asserts his spiritual fatherhood of them for their own good. Remember the context there. Those Corinthian believers had other would-be leaders who were vying for a following. Those super apostles. That's a somber note. Uh, also to remember there are others in our culture who are competing to raise our children in a different way different faith different God to lead you or your friends astray to be there for them as a father a mother a mentor a friend so they don't wander off God's word calls us to follow Jesus to be a faithful son a daughter like him He calls us to undivided discipleship, to be disciples together following the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the way that you've built and designed this life, this world, for giving us uh, families, everyone a mother somewhere, everyone a father somewhere. And so you've given us uh, this picture of what our relationship with you is like. You ask us to call you Father, to ask you for gifts. You call the little children to come to you. Do not forbid them. And so, Lord, we have come. We are here before our Father's throne eager to receive from your table. Thankful for your assurance of your love for us. Thankful even for correction or harder words, warnings, discipline, because it will be fruitful over time, even if it is not pleasant now. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us uh, your spirit's insight and wisdom into this passage today 
We ask that you would strengthen us to fulfill it, to imitate your son Jesus, and to become made more and more into his image. We pray in his name and we sing as he taught us to pray. for our communion exhortation today. Selected verses. Your, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. As we talked about at the beginning of the message, sin brings division. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God sent them out. When Jesus bore our sins on the cross, the Father forsook him. Separation comes with sin. As Isaiah says too, your sins have separated you from God. But God overcomes that division. He is the great bridge builder. He does it. We cannot. Isaiah also says, Here's a phrase that I just love. It's not my own, but I don't remember where I got it from. Sin dismembers. But God in Christ remembers us. And that profound truth is portrayed every time we break bread here and take this Lord's Supper. It's not just mental recollection. Do this in remembrance of me. God literally, physically, spiritually, puts us back together again. We are made members of his body again, reconciled to God in Christ. These are gifts of God for the people of God. Come, for all things are now ready. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.